Uh, I spent a lot of time in Togo, West Africa. We have a mission partner there. Some of you have met um, Macklin and Rose Bossy. Macklin is actually going to be here uh, the 1st of December. Uh, his daughter is at the University of Kentucky, Benita. Um, and so he's coming to see her, but also he's a U.S. citizen. So he has to come once a year just to keep that citizenry uh, up, up to date and that kind of thing. So uh, he'll be here. But one of the things that has always struck me when I'm in uh, Togo is whether we're in a moment of seriousness, uh, something maybe going on at the church there or with some of the orphans or even some of the, the voodoo stuff that we experience over there, or something even just simple as being around the house, you can pretty much count on Rose, Macklin's wife, breaking out into song at some point. She's just, she, the way she approaches life is when she feels anxious, when she feels excited, when she feels thankful, when she feels repentant, she just breaks out into a song. And I've, I've thought about that over the years, just that, that, that's sort of the human experience is when we have something that we're experiencing in life, music, poetry is an expression of the soul. Uh, in fact, my daughter sang in a, in a uh, choir concert uh, last week. One of the songs they said is, your soul is a song. And I thought that's a great title for a, for a song. Your soul is a song. Uh, one of the great British philosopher Andrew Fletcher said this. He says, let me make the songs of a nation. I care not who makes its laws. Now, he wasn't putting down the need for laws, but what he was saying was, you can tell a lot about a, about a culture, about a generation of people, by the songs that come out of them. And if you remember a couple weeks ago, when we were at this passage in Philippians 2, Paul himself breaks out into song uh, in, in Philippians 2, 6 through 11. And I, 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 I pointed out to us that that 6 through 11, he changes the way he writes because he's actually quoting uh, an early church hymn there. And it was the song about Christ. And he, he said this about our Savior, that he, though he was in the form of God, did not make equality with God something to be exploited. But instead, Jesus Christ emptied himself, took on human flesh, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And God, therefore, highly exalted him, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That was the song. And the reason he did that is because the book of Philippians is an exhortation to a church that they should live lives worthy of this gospel. And that gospel should be lived out in its harmony and unity of the church because they are the lights of the world in their generation. What's the motivation for that? It's Christ. And that's where he is right here. This he picks back up with his exhortation with the word, therefore. You know, you always have to ask, what's the therefore, therefore, right? Therefore, because what Christ, what I just sang about with Christ, this is how I want you to live. So he picks it up. And let's, let's look at it here. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Let me just, let me just give a, a, a brief personal privilege here. Paul... Uh, Paul, many, many commentators think that the Philippian church was Paul's favorite. Uh, of all of his letters, he just gushes with 
love and affection. This, the way this is translated in a lot of your Bibles is my, my dear friends. He says, therefore my dear friends or my beloved. Uh, one, one, one theologian actually translated it as, as God's friends, you are my friends. Uh, and, 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 and that's one of the, Paul's favorite ways of describing how he and how you and I are in Christ is that we are in the beloved and therefore, since we together are in the beloved, then you are my beloved. And that's the way he talked to his, to, his, to his people. Eight times in these few verses, he uses the I, me, my first person to talk about how he feels about their faith and their relationship. In fact, when we get to chapter four, it's overwhelming how much he gushes uh, at them about the, the, his love for them and, and how much he, they have helped. So this, this month, I don't know who, who does these kind of things, but this month was designated uh, Pastor Appreciation uh, Month. And uh, thank you. It was great. Got some really sweet letters. Got some great peanuts from Virginia, uh, from Vermont. Uh, uh, had some great calls from people. Felt, felt so loved. Uh, this morning, uh, I'm, the only, I'm the only pastor here. Luke's in Poland. Mark's on his writing week. He's actually in church in Bowling Green with Keaton. Uh, but this morning, Robert Cunningham, former minister of our church, was here helping, and John Sartell, former minister, was here at the nine o'clock. And I just, I just said to the congregation this morning, I'll say to you as well, I think I speak for all those, those guys, and, and all our ministry staff as well that you guys wrote letters to, that we feel this way about y'all. Uh, we feel like what Paul's writing here about the beloved, we feel that about you guys. Uh, this church has t- taken such good care of the ministers and the ministers here have loved being a part of a church like this because there is this, we're in the beloved together and we love each other and serve each other well. That's something very, very special. And I just wanted to, to take a personal moment to, take, to thank you for that and tell you on behalf of the other guys, they, they're grateful for that as well. So Paul is speaking about his relationship with them. All right, let's go on, let's go on with the passage. Um, so he says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, that obey is connected back to what Christ did. Christ obeyed. We have that mind. We obey the will of God. Not only when, Christ, when Paul is present, but he's absent. They're not going to always have Paul around. So they can't just be performing this obedience. It's got to come from something else. So then he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What in the world is he talking about here? What does he mean by work out your salvation? Now, one of the, there's, what, what, we, what we try to do at this church when we take the Bible is we try to teach it exegetically, right? We, we want to exegete the passage. The opposite of that is called eisegesis, where you take a passage, you pull it out, and you apply it however you want to apply it over here. If you do that with this passage, it can be very, very dangerous because it says, work out your salvation. And if you just pull that out of the context, you think, okay, it's me and God, and we're going to team up to save me. (laughs) That's going to work out my salvation. That is not what the Bible teaches. Salvation is from God, to God, by God, for God, through God, in the story. It's not about you. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So when he's talking about working out your salvation, he's not asking you to co-partner with him in your salvation. His salvation was rooted in Christ, your salvation is rooted in Christ alone. So what does he mean by work out your salvation? What he means is we work it out right here. You and I are in Christ. You're in Christ. I'm in Christ. To the degree that I understand my salvation and my sanctification and you're doing the same, 
we work that out together in the community. That's what he means by work out your salvation. He's connecting it to to the first part of chapter two. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Consider others better than yourselves. Be like Christ who was a servant and laid down his life. That's how you work out the salvation that's rooted in Christ. And he says, do this with fear and trembling. Now, if you, if you do it, if you isogetically take that passage out and say, oh, this is about you and God, and he's trying to get you to work out your salvation with him, then you apply that fear and trembling to God. So you approach God with fear and trembling because I gotta work out my salvation. Now, obviously we know that we should approach God with fear and trembling. Uh, we should have reverence to God. Uh, you've seen the Chronicles of Narnia where Lucy is having the conversation with the beaver. She's like, oh, I'm kind of excited about meeting Aslan. And she's like, oh, dearie. You know, I, I'm not gonna try to talk like the beaver, but you know, oh, dearie, uh, be very careful. You don't approach Aslan without your knees shaking. Oh, why? Because he's dreadful. He, you should approach him with fear and trembling. But then what does he tell her? But he's good. Yeah, he, he is to be revered, but he's good. So there is that element of how we should approach God. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about approaching, working out your salvation with fear and trembling towards God. In the context, that's why we gotta keep the passage in its context. He's talking about how you and I approach our working out salvation with each other. And the whole context is about humility. That I come to my relationship with you in Christ. You come to your relationship with me in Christ with fear and trembling. In Christ, there's no competition, there's no comparison, there's no judgment. We approach each other with humility as we are working out our salvation here. Why do we do that? The next word there in your passage is for, for. Why why do we work out our salvation with fear and dream? Because it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See how he anchors you back in God? How are you gonna do this, people? How are we gonna work out our salvation here in this day and time, in this generation, as we'll see in a second, in a crooked and twisted generation? How are you gonna do that? God is working in you. He takes them back to the anchor, which is God. This is interesting wordplay here that Paul uses. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says, for it's God who works. Two different words. This, this, this uh, Greek word that he uses that God is at work is used 20 times in the New Testament. Paul uses it 18 of those 20 times. And it's his favorite word to talk about the energy that comes to you through the Holy Spirit for God to work in you. One commentator said this, this verb is a special Pauline word. It carries within it the idea of working mightily, working effectively. The form of the verb is a participial verb, so it's a noun. Thus, it becomes another name for God, the great energizer. (laughs) I love that. God is the one at work in you. God is at work in the one sitting next to you. And he's working all this salvation out for his good pleasure. It pleases God that we work out his salvation here. God wants his people to live holy lives in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And that's where he goes, verse 14. So we see what he wants us to do with our salvation is work it out with fear and trembling. But look, he says, you also have to leave something out. (laughs) Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. 
The opposite of having humility and giving deference and preference to others is complaining and grumbling against each other. Um, if, you, if you think about your Bible, this, this, is, this was true when the people of God were coming out, of, the Israelites were coming out of, the, uh, out of Egypt in the Exodus. One of the things that happened over there is they kept grumbling against Moses and against the leaders and against God about what was happening. And so this, this brings out that illusion of the wilderness that they were grumbling against the leaders of Israel. Uh, and if you remember back in Philippians 1.1, Paul says that he's writing this letter alongside the elders and the deacons of that church. He's exhorting them not to grumble and dispute. What, what causes us to grumble? What causes us to dispute? Well, if you take the context what he's talking about, if I have selfish ambition, if I'm looking out for my own interest and my own interests aren't met and my ambitions are thwarted, what do I do? I complain, I grumble. So I started thinking about this. I've been, you know, I've been in ministry for 27 years and I don't wanna be overly simplistic, but I've, I've, I've observed two things that cause God's people to grumble and complain. Uh, again, I don't wanna be overly simplistic, but uh, and it's when they fixate on these two things. Because these two things I'm about to tell you aren't in and of themselves bad. But what happens is when I fixate on them, when I, when I take my gaze off the greatness of the gospel and us working my, our salvation out together, and I fixate on something. The first is I fixate on some personal preference that I have. All right, when I, when I have a personal preference that we should do this, or that should be this way, or we should sing that way, or you should stand this way, or you should wear this. You, should, you know, we do that kind of thing. A, a person, it's fine for you to have your personal preferences. That's what makes the church glorious, is a whole bunch of people that are really different with different kind of preferences. But when you start fixating that your preferences now become the law of the land, you're right for grumbling and complaining, right? That just stirs that up. So personal preferences. The second is when there's problems. You know, you, the old image, if you find the perfect church, please do not join it. You're going to ruin it, right? Because the church has just got problems. But when I fixate on the problems, whether it's be technological problems or global wars, you know, there's problems everywhere. But when I get fixated on a problem and I, I forget that God is at work in me to work for his good pleasure, he's in you to work for good, his good pleasure, and I fixate on a problem, now I'm, I'm ripe for grumbling and disputing and splitting hairs and that kind of thing. So just take this as a pastoral uh, exhortation. Be mindful of your personal preferences and the way you view problems. And don't fixate on them. Fix your eyes on Christ, because when we fix our eyes there and we together work out our salvation like that, it will keep us from, a, uh, from grumbling and complaining. All right, so let's, let's, let's go on and finish this little section. He, he says, so that, so the, the grumbling and the disputing goes away, so that you and I will be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. What he's talking about here is, is holiness, that you and I are a people set apart. Because he says, while you live are in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. I, I, don't, I don't have to tell you that you live in a crooked and twisted generation, do I? You see it. Uh, just turn the news on. Uh, look at your own heart at times. We, we live in a crooked and twisted generation. We're just distorting everything that is good and, and beautiful. 
But I was struck by the word generation here. This letter was written in A.D. 62. We live in A.D. 2023, so almost 2,000 years. And Paul is calling his generation crooked and twisted. There's nothing new under the sun. Our generation is not more crooked, not more twisted. Uh, when little Liam Graham, uh, when William Graham Duncan VII has William Graham Duncan Fourteenth, his generation will be crooked and twisted too. And what does God require in each generation? That his people are set apart. That they shine as lights in that generation. How do they do that? They work out their salvation with fear and trembling, without grumbling and complaining. They have humility towards one another because they are the lights of the world. Uh, my, my habit when I'm preaching is to, is to get here very early, and it's always dark. So I come in as, but something happened over the last couple of years in this building that makes coming into this building in the darkness very trepidatious. Is that a word? Trepidatious. Is that a word? Yeah, okay. Mm, two years ago, a homeless man made his abode in Luke's office, or next to Luke's office downstairs when Luke was still an intern. Uh, we, we said, Luke, you've taken mercy ministry a little bit too far. Uh, but somehow this homeless guy found a way to get into the church building at night, and he just started sleeping in this abandoned office. And it was happening for days and days and days. And we finally figured, there's something going on. It's weird. We hear noises, and there's people. We got on the tape and saw this guy, and we ended up handling it. But what that did to all of us that work here is when you come here at night or you're leaving here at late, it just causes this fear. So I showed up this morning very early. It was dark, and I, I want to come into the sanctuary. And what I do is I walk the aisles, and I pray. I, I try to remember where all y'all sit, and I pray for you. And, and uh, you know, I walk the aisles. But the first thing I do when I come here is I turn on those lights. Because there may be a homeless guy sleeping on the front row here, you know. Like, I, The light reveals what might be crooked and twisted in this building. That's the idea of light. You turn the light on, and it dispels fear. It dispels darkness. It dispels discomfort. And what Paul is saying is when you and I work out our salvation with fear and trembling and humility towards one another, we turn the light on in a crooked and perverse generation. You are the light of the world in this generation. Let your light shine, is what Jesus said. Because there's coming a day, as Paul says, he calls it the day of Christ, that on that day of Christ, I will not have labored in vain. What does he mean? Well, the day of Christ is, 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 is uh, exposited for us in the book of Revelation. And in Revelation 5, when, the, when, when Christ is reigning on his throne, it says that they the people from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue sang a new song. They broke out in song. And the song they sang is, Worthy are you because you were slain. And you purchased men for God from every tribe, nation, and people. group. And, and by your blood, they were purchased. That was their song. And the reason he could sing that is because what John tells us is when Christ is reigning on his throne, there will be no need for the sun or the moon or any more lights. You will not have to be the light of the world anymore because the light of the world would have come and would have exposed all darkness. And he will reign and there will be no crooked and twisted generations anymore. But until that day, we live in a generation where we have songs we have to sing to remind ourselves that Christ is all and in all.
So as we come to the, as we come to the table this morning, in, in, in Mark's gospel and in Matthew's gospel, when, he, when they write about the Lord's Supper, okay, so we're going to talk about the, you know, the Lord's Supper. You're going to get the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, which is that declaration that this is how God works in us. This is the salvation that we're all working out together is that Christ died for sinners. And Mark and Matthew, uh, yeah, Mark and Matthew tell us that after they got up from supper, they sang a hymn. I think that is so cool. Wouldn't you have loved to heard Jesus sing in Nasty Peter? But they all sang together a hymn because that gospel brought something out of them. And so here in Philippians, Paul has burst out into song about Christ. And that song is to remind us that we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling together because we are in the beloved. Amen? Amen. So let's prepare to come to the table together. Let me pray. I'll transition us to the Lord's Prayer, and then we'll come to the table together. Father, thank you for this encouraging word from Paul this morning, that you have given us a great salvation, and we do not have to work for it. All the work was done by you and through you, through your Son on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for purchasing our salvation. And now, Lord, as we live in this generation, help us as a church, as individuals, as families to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, with great humility, giving great patience to one another, great measures of grace. Lord, help us to die to our own personal preferences. Help us to lay aside our own fixation on problems and look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. And Lord, I pray now as we come to this table that we would taste and see how good this gospel is for us. And now, Lord Christ, we pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.